0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Herron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This week, we're focusing on a man whose life was sadly brief but extremely influential. Stuart Sutcliffe met John Lennon at art school and was talked into joining his band and going on the road to Hamburg with Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Pete Best. But his passion for art quickly overtook his interest in music, and he decided to stay behind in Germany with his girlfriend Astrid Kirscher. Suffering from intense headaches, he collapsed and died from a brain haemorrhage in 1962, leaving his family, Astrid, and the Beatles heartbroken. I'm Laura Davis. And I'm Ellen Kerwin, and this is Beatles City. So, Ellen, to find out about Stuart Sutcliffe, we actually went to the man who runs his fan club.
1: Yeah, so we went, uh, well, we spoke to David Bedford under quite different circumstances. Usually we'd have got him into the studio with us, but with us being on lockdown, we've done it all over Skype. And um, he's done, you know, crazy research into Stuart. And also, like you said, you know, he runs the fan club, which is quite unusual for someone who's, you know not actually that involved in the Beatles to have a fan club but he says it's still really active and it's the most sort of avid Beatles fans that come to the fan club so he's got a really great knowledge of that.
0: One thing that really struck me was how very young Stuart was when he died but how he'd had quite a profound influence on the Beatles
1: yeah well he he sort of had a different influence it wasn't so much with the music; it was more the style and the way they were and the attitudes and One of the things that him and John really bonded on was art. Stuart actually left the the Beatles in the early days um to pursue his art and obviously John was in art college and he loved his doodles, and his you know paintings are really famous now, so they connected on quite a different level. And yeah, I think that's really prominent in what David says
0: to us. And and I think also how Stuart's death left this huge hole in John's life.
1: Yeah, David picks up on that, but
0: he goes into detail about how really
1: he never actually gets over it. And it's one of the main travesties in John's life, really. And that, you know, some of maybe even the lyrics in some of the songs could be about Stuart. Thank you very much for joining us on quite an unconventional Beatles City podcast. Usually we'd have you in the studio or we'd be speaking to you on the phone, but we're all working from home at the moment. So we've got you here on Skype, which is a little bit different for us.
2: Yeah, it's fun. I'm up for it. Wonders of technology. It's amazing.
1: So you're quite the expert, as we know. We've had you on here before, but today we want to talk about something that we've not mentioned or touched on before with yourself, and that's Stuart Sutcliffe. So tell me a little bit about the research you started with him.
2: Um, well, I started um, working on my first book, Lilypool, uh, 20 years ago. And I, I wanted to go and find a book just on the Beatles in Liverpool because um, I've grown up with the Beatles all around me. I grew up in the Dingle where Ringo's from, went to the school that he went to. Um, I lived off Penny Lane for over 30 years. My kids went to Dovedale School where John and George were at school. So I've always had the Beatles around me, so I thought it'd be fun go and buy a book on the Beatles and Liverpool and read it and go and visit all the places, and there wasn't one. So I ended up over a nine-year period researching it and and writing the book that became Liverpool. So as part of that, I wanted to do the journey of, you know, people know that the the Fab Four of John Paul George and Ringo, but I wanted to know what came for that. Now, as a Beatles fan, obviously, I I come across people like Pete Best and Stuart Sutcliffe, I knew of the Quarrymen, but I wanted to go and find out more and interview as many people as I could as possible. And of course, um, in Stuart's story, because he died when he was only 21, back in 1962. So it was particularly interesting to go and find out what I could about him. And by doing that and speaking to Stuart's sister, Pauline, uh, over the years when, when I got to know really well, um, I was asked to to run the official Stuart Sutcliffe fan club, uh, which I still do on behalf of, of the family. Stuart's a really interesting character, and there's lots of myths built up around him, and it depends who you speak to. And that's always the way in in Liverpool, it's it's the fun of it because everybody you meet has got a Beatles story. You know, there must be at least six or seven thousand people on the last night at the cavern, even though you can only get 500 in there. (laughs) Everybody's related to them, so it's it's fun. So, you've got to sort of work your way through the myth and um, all the hearsay and find the truth. So One of the best things I did when trying to find out about Stuart was by talking to Pete Best, who was the Beatles drummer from 1960 to 1962, because of course he worked closely with him, because they played thousands of hours together. Because one of the big myths has always been, oh, Stuart Sutcliffe couldn't play, he was just in the band because he looked cool. And that's completely wrong. So I spoke to different musicians who played with him to say, "No, no, Stuart was a really good rock and roll bass player. So I started to find more and more about this lad who, because he died so young, it's one of the funny things that you you pass on and you become a legend and the stories grow. So what I love doing is getting through all those stories and trying to find what's, what's the actual truth. Who was Stuart Sutcliffe? What was the truth about his musicianship? And of course, what a great artist as well. So he's a really, really interesting character.
1: And I suppose what you've got, what what's quite different to all the other researchers is obviously you're being you're in Liverpool, so you're really getting down to the the start of it, the organic growth of it. Do you find that bit particularly not not easier, but do, do you think that's an advantage you've got in research? You know?
2: Oh yeah, massive advantage, and it's interesting because I, I travel to America quite a lot. I speak at Beatles conventions and stuff like that. First thing, yes, from Liverpool. Second, I've got Liverpool accent, and and it, and it's weird because. A number of people when I'm there say can I just stand and listen to you talk all day so it makes it so much easier because I know the geography and um, I know where he lived you know starting off with with and coming into city centre Gambier Terrace Canning Street all, all around that area so I understand the area and I understand the history of Liverpool
0: so Stuart was born in Edinburgh is that right and then he moved here with his family
2: absolutely right yeah yeah so he, he is he's Scottish by birth moved down from Edinburgh with his family when he was quite young um, his dad worked at Camel Laird, that's one of the reasons for coming down here, and they settled in Highton, <clears throat> so he, he grew up there. Went to Parkview Primary School, uh, then Prescott Grammar School. He was a very good student. His art came to the fore. You know, he's very, very talented. So that's how he got into the, um, the Liverpool Art College, on the back of, of his incredible artistic talent. Um, a few years ago, I was over in New York, which is where Pauline Sutcliffe lived. Uh, sadly, she's. She died recently. And she, she's got all the Stuart's archive. And she just pulled out these drawers and was showing me Stuart's um exercise books from school. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like when he was doing woodwork, he'd do a drawing of what he was studying. Oh my gosh, the detail on it was it was just phenomenal. So he could he could do absolutely anything. He was so, so talented as, as an artist. So Scottish by birth, but definitely big, big uh, Liverpool influence in his life as well.
0: So he so did he did they settle in Heighton originally? because I know that they lived near Sefton Park at one point, didn't they?
2: Yeah, so they started in Highton and then they they moved down to so, um, at one time the family lived to well, what's now the Sefton Park Hotel by the lake. and then they moved uh, and lived in Ullit Road, just the other side of Sefton Park for a time as well. By that time, when they were living in Sefton Park, Stuart was down by Gambia Terrace and Percy Street and around the the cathedral
0: as a student he was in that area yeah
2: yeah he was he was a student there so he was sharing a flat um with his good friend rod murray and rod and and he shared flats in canning street percy street and then gambia terrace by the time they were in gambia john lennon was hanging out with them so much he actually sort of almost permanently moved in and lived at gambia terrace with them as well which then brought paul and george down there and that's where musically before the four of them really get together and they start practising there, still with no drummer at that point. So, sort of end of 59, beginning of 1960, but that's where, in a way, the, the Beatles as a band started in the, the Gambia Terrace flat.
1: Do you think it was the fact that John really appreciated art and he studied art and obviously Stuart was so brilliant, do you think that brought them together a little bit or do you think it was specifically music?
2: And they certainly the the music was certainly a big draw. Um, They liked the same music, they had the same sense of humor. But John, and he he said this many times in his life, he looked up to Stuart. So even though Stuart wasn't the greatest musician, he was still, as I said before, you know, a really good uh, musician. But Stuart was such an outstanding artist at the art college, he stood out, he really did. But he loved the rock and roll. He loved the image. Interesting thing, when um, we worked on the Looking for Lennon documentary film that I helped make, Helen Anderson, who was from the Art College, she said a very, very interesting thing, which was Stuart was a very calming influence on John, and sometimes he needed that because he could go off and be wild. Paul McCartney was a good calming influence on him, but Stuart certainly was, and John had a great respect for Stuart as an artist, but as a person. You know, he's a very deep thinker, very, very creative. And John really admired that in Stuart. So it was a bit of everything pulled them together and they became almost like brothers.
0: They had quite different personalities then.
2: Yes. Yeah. Stuart was quieter. And I think that's what John needed because he could be so outlandish, but it didn't mean he was quiet. Quieter, most people were quieter to John <laughs> if went had a, a few beers. The intellectual in Stuart, I think John liked. And John was a deep thinker as well. And that's where one of the stories where they used to meet up at Ye Crack. And there was John Stuart, Rod Murray and Bill Harry. And they called themselves the dissenters. And they would sit there and they would spend the whole evening debating all kinds of things. There'd be art, politics, history you name it, they were all deep thinkers and they'd have these great in-depth discussions and that they decided they were going to change the world somehow and each of them would contribute to put Liverpool back on the map.
0: So you're talking about crack Pub which has a very small back room and I think there's a sign up in there isn't there to say that they were all Yeah, there.
2: Yeah, a plaque up on the wall, with the dissenters one, and they got the little snugs and the war room as it was called and they would sit there for hours. Probably just with one pint because they couldn't afford very much, and John very rarely had money. But they would sit there for hours and debating all kinds of deep philosophical ideas. You know, so, uh, they were really, really good evenings then. They, they used to love getting together and just talking and talking about everything.
0: You sound like you'd, you'd have liked to have been in on one of them.
2: Oh, definitely. I'd love to be in there, even just, just to listen.
1: So, do you know much about how? Um... When he did start playing with them, at what point it was he decided to not play with with John and Paul anymore and sort of focus on his art?
2: Yeah, that was out in Hamburg in uh, the spring of 1961. Because he was, they were platinuming, I mean, and of course they were playing six to eight hours a night, mostly yeah. every night of the week. Whereas the others would then go and crash and sleep, not get up till like the afternoon. Stuart would go home, maybe have a quick nap, and then be painting, and you can't do that for very, very long because you burn the candle at well, probably more than two if you were a steward. Mm-hmm. And he decided art oh, was his passion and he wanted to either come back to Liverpool or study in Hamburg, and he decided to study in Hamburg. It got to stage, I think Paul was getting more fed up because he was missing some rehearsals, wasn't as committed to the music and he could see that there was there's going to be a time when there's going to be a clash. And in the end, Paul looked at Stuart because he was only small and there was nothing of him. And Paul thought, I can take him. So on stage in Hamburg, Paul decides that's the time to have a fight with Stuart. And he thought, I'll take him out in no time. Stuart may have been little, but he was tough. And they were fighting and arguing for about an hour. So it, it wasn't an easy so so I know Paul's regretted that because of Stuart dying so young but Paul was just so committed to the musicianship of the band and he felt Stuart wasn't so I think Stuart could see what was coming and in the end he decided right I'm going to quit and he signed up for art college in, in Hamburg so many artists have looked at the output of, of Stuart's work and said if he had have lived he would have been a famous painter. He he was that good an artist.
0: So, what sort of things was he painting at that point in Hamburg?
2: Absolutely everything. Um, he had so many different styles, he could do sketches. Mainly it was large canvases. Um, and he could be um impressionist. There's some of the, the collection, and you can see a lot um at the website Stuart Sucliffe Art, where he do this huge, huge paintings, and sometimes you have a mixture of you know, clippings from newspaper, then you paint over the top. Or do more moving stuff like the crucifixion of Jesus. He was so varied in what he could do.
1: And was it was it at that point in Hamburg where he met Astrid?
2: He met Astrid on their very first trip. It's when they went over in August 1960. It's only a couple of months later that Astrid came into the club where they were playing with their friend Klaus Foreman and Jürgen Vollmer. And they just fell madly in love. So within three months, they were engaged. So when all the chaos of the first Hamburg trip, when George was deported for being underage, Paul and Pete were deported for allegedly trying to burn down a club. John wasn't involved in that bit, but he was stuck on his own. So Stuart stayed with Astrid and John came home. So really that could have been the end of the Beatles at the end of 1960. But they got together and Mona Best was running the Casbar, and said, come and play at the Casbar." Sort of kept the band together
1: so she probably had something to do with his decision you know if he if he's so in love with it and she was um into artistry herself she was a photographer so do you think she had an influence on him
2: i think so as well as being drawn to each other with this mutual attraction there was an intellectual coming together as well between the two and that's should had quite a lot to do with shaping the look of the beatles you know she was the first one to do what became known as the mop top beetle haircut. She did that for Stuart. And at first when he he changed his hair from the quiff to having this mop top, John Paul and George laughed at him. But then the end of 1961, when John Paul went to Paris to see Jürgen, they said can you cut our hair like that as well? So it, it was a fascinating relationship. And they were just so close and so in love so quickly. Uh, which is one of, of the tragedies of the stories that, you know, at the age of only 21, Stuart died.
0: So I'm, I met Astrid about 15 years ago, maybe, so she was obviously, you know, a much older woman then, but the way that she spoke of Stuart was still as if she still felt some of what you've just described. Do you think that she yeah. did carry that through her life? Yeah,
2: absolutely. 'Cause she married twice, but neither relationship lasted. And I think she always said the problem was deep down she always loved Stuart. And even trying to get married and have a normal life, she couldn't.
1: And I, I can imagine maybe, you know, the other band members, maybe particularly John, they felt the same way. They they just, you know, never stopped loving him and really admired him for the rest of their life because he had such a big impact.
2: Yeah, yeah, because Astrid came over to Liverpool. Brian um, engaged her to do some photographs of the Beatles here in Liverpool and and other bands and stuff. So they kept that connection. They stayed close. And part of that, particularly from John's point of view, was to still have a connection with Stuart. I remember Yoko Ono saying a number of years ago, he said, hardly a day went by when John didn't mention Stuart. You know, so even all those years later, that influence of Stuart on John was there in John's life, still being a massive, massive influence.
1: It's quite a special friendship. So how long was it then that they that they known each other over that this what was the span?
2: And John. Um that was from our college. Stuart was already at our college when right. when John joined in September fifty seven. So that they, they became friends during fifty eight by the end of 59 they were looking at We need a bass player And because John was hanging out At at the Percy Street flat and then obviously spending so much time at Gambia Terrace as well That friendship really developed and so John wanted his new best mate in the band And so John said to uh, Stuart and Rod Murray, we need a bass player Whichever one of you can get a bass join the band. Neither of them had money. So Rod Murray went off being a, a good uh, designer and started making a bass guitar. He cut it out of wood and he, he still got he still got that piece of wood now. It's great. It never it's
0: got it never got any further. It's still like the front of a guitar.
2: Yeah it? yeah it's, it's just a just a wooden outline of a bass guitar. It, it's brilliant. <laughs> but then Stuart put um a painting to the Walker Art Gallery annual prize for, for John Moores. He didn't win but John Moores liked his painting and he paid, I think about 65 pounds, which back in 1960 is a lot of money. So at the Casbar Club one night, John and Paul pinned Stuart into a corner and the whole night saying, you've got to buy a bass guitar. And he said, well, I've got to buy canvases, paints, pencils. And... Now you've got to buy a bass the whole night until Stuart said, okay, I'll get a bass guitar. So that's why Rod never finished his because Stuart got the money and he bought his bass. So that's, it's only 1960 that the Beatles as a rock and roll band really came together. It starts with John Paul and George, then they add Stuart, and then in the May, they get Tommy Moore as their first drummer.
0: And the very fact that, that Stuart's painting was chosen for the John Wall's prize exhibition shows the standard of his work. I mean, David Hockney's oh, yeah. won that prize.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You've got to be a big, big talent. And one of the funny stories about it was, because he, he loved painting on a big scale, you had to take then your, your piece of art down to the, to the gallery. So Stuart and Rod carried the first half of the painting because it was in two parts. They never took the second part down. They only ever exhibited the first half of the painting. And, of course, Stuart was the guy who came up with the name Beatles because they used the name Quarrymen for so long I thought we need a different name. And their thing was, well, Buddy Holly was their absolute idol. Their band was the crickets. So Stuart said, Well, if they're crickets, we could be Beatles.
1: That itself, just you know, that they kept the, the name shows how much they admired him. Do you think if if maybe he hadn't been so invested in his art, he would still he would he would be in the band, you know, when they really took off?
2: Um probably not. I think you, what you see with the Beatles is every time they need to take an extra step, they bring somebody in with the better ability. So that's why Paul got in to start with, to make the band better. But they needed a lead guitar, which Paul couldn't do, so they brought George in. Then they were doing really well, but Stuart was limited. He was a good rock and roll bass player, but at that stage, maybe with practice and stuff, he could have taken it to the next step. But musically, once Paul took over on bass, they immediately went up a notch and, and it made the group better.
0: So obviously you've talked a little about how tragic it was when, when he died. So how did how did that come about? He'd, he initially started struggling with headaches, didn't he?
2: Yeah. So one of the things I did when I was um, writing Liddy Pool was there's so many different stories out there as to how he died. And one of the big stories that was told was that John and Stuart had got into a fight in Hamburg, which I've never come across any evidence of that. And supposedly that, uh, John kicked Stuart in the head. And so they you know, tried to say that he died from that injury. So there's um, a doctor did this great outline of, these are the different ways you could die. And he looked at what the, uh, the coroner's report said. <clears throat> and he said, if it had been from an injury, there would have been evidence on x-rays and Stuart had x-rays done because of the headaches, and there was no injuries there. He'd also been beaten up in Liverpool at uh, Latham Hall in Seaforth and it got quite badly beaten up but that was beginning of 61. If you were going to die as a result of injuries you would have different symptoms and it would have been quicker. So this doctor looked at it and said what well, seems clear from the symptoms of start with the, with the headaches then there was the mood swings and like blurred vision he so said. then you're down to either something like a brain tumor or um, a cerebral breed, bleed and he says that from because he'd had x-rays done because of these headaches there was no skull fractures there's no damage like that so what makes the most sense is that there was a bleed on the brain which is probably genetic and it was seeping into the brain put more and more pressure on it and Eventually that just became so much that the final burst that that's when, when he died.
1: And I have touched on this a little bit before, but what do you know where the where the bands were when they found out about Stuart's death?
2: Oh that's one of those those tragic things. They were flying back to Hamburg to open the Star Club, brand new club, in, in April 62. George had been Ill. So he came out the following day. So there was John and Paul and Pete flew into Hamburg Airport and normally Astrid and Stuart would be there to greet them. This time it was just Astrid. And John says, oh, where's Stuart? And he died the previous day. And Astrid had to tell them there and then. It's a tragic, tragic way of, uh, of finding out the news. And, and John, he, he was devastated. But one of the things he did was he, he said to Astrid, he wanted to pose in exactly the same place in her studio as Stuart had done. And so there's, there's a series of photos of John standing in the same pose, exactly the same place as Stuart had done.
0: Those photographs are beautiful, aren't they? The, the light sort of coming down.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I so thought we went up in, in the attic And there's the the skylight window shining through. you can just see, because Aston was such a good photographer, you can just see the pain on John's face. John became a bit of a fatalist. He felt that anybody who got close to him was going to die. And he never really shook that off. He he carried that with him. Because so many people got close to him and died in a way he was scared to form relationships
1: I've heard before that astrid said it, it was in that moment um when when George came over and joined them that she she said he became a man in that moment because up until then she'd really seen him as the baby of the group and you know a, a joker similar to John in a way but she said the way he reacted in them circumstances it made me see him and the and the band in a different light
2: yeah and it, it's it's how you react to these things and And she always had a very, very soft spot for George. And he he could be tender in understanding. Whereas John, in the end, he said to Astrid, you've got to make a decision now. Stuart's not here. You either live or you die. You've got to make a decision. What are you going to choose? And he said, it was brutal. But it made her listen and think, I've got to get my head around this.
1: So there, there were the mops, like you said, you know, the mop tops that, that they I suppose in a way that was a homo- a homage to, to him. Do you think that in any other way they they um sort of you know give the nod back to him?
2: Um well if you listen to In My Life, you know, it was one of the best Beatles songs. Yeah. Um John's line about the people that he misses, some are dead and some are living. The well, some are dead, that's the reference to Stuart. And some are living would be to his best friends, like Pete Shotton.
0: I was interested in what a Stuart Sutcliffe fan is like, because you obviously run the fan club. Everybody has their favorite Beatle, but to have Stuart as your favorite, it's a bit out there. <laughs> so what, what, are the, what are his fans like?
2: Well, it's amazing. You know, we've got um, with the Facebook group for the, the Stuart Sutcliffe fan club, and there's fans getting added every day. And what I did was, for them to join, I always ask a question of why do you want to join? And it's amazing the different answers that you get from people all over the world. Some, well, I'm a fan of the Beatles, so I want to know as much as possible. But loads of them, yes, he was a Beatle, but we love his art. They want to know, because he's such an important part of early Beatles history. If they don't know that much, they, they want to learn more and more. Because I think the way Brian Epstein brilliantly portrayed the Beatles when he launched them was... Here's these four tough working-class lads from Liverpool, which wasn't accurate anyway. And the Beatles were John Paul George and Ringo, and that was it. So when you do that, you immediately exclude everything that came before. That then became the mystery, and people wanted to know more. They become more and more interested in those early years.
0: And what did his sister make of all of that?
2: Pauline was, was so happy to manage the estate, and their other sister Joyce still lives in Liverpool. So Pauline spent the whole of the rest of her life dedicated to preserve Stuart's memory and she, after she died just a few months ago the estate is still carrying on so that more and more people still get to see the legacy, not just of the Beatles, but of, of the artist. The whole family is dedicated to preserving Stuart's memory which is the wonderful thing.
1: If you've enjoyed this episode of Beatles City, please remember to review, rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you will find all the episodes from our last three series. Join us next week when we'll be learning about some fascinating Beatles artefacts, including Brian Epstein's stolen briefcase and a series of t-shirts designed by Ringo Starr.
0: Before you go, we wanted to tell you about another podcast that we think you'll really enjoy. Particularly if you're interested in Liverpool or social history. The Brink looks into the hard left militant faction of the Labour Party, a secretive group that ran Liverpool in the 1980s, a time of vanishing jobs, shut docks, and riots. It's created by our colleague, Julia Rampin, who is an excellent journalist and a great storyteller. Here's a clip.
2: Um, how did it feel at the time? I mean, incredibly furious and I wanted to go knock him out on the platform but at the same time so disappointed as well. It was gut-wrenching.
1: No, it was horrible. It was it was really very, very bad. I was just, how dare you? Just how dare
2: you? They were supposed to be there for the serious business of defending the city and its people and they were just playing politics.
0: This is the podcast that dives deep into 1980s Liverpool and the politics that emerged from it. This is The Brink.